Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the, and the life was the light of humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all may might believe that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a husband, but of God. And the word became the flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he whom I said, he whom comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eva. Um, Well, friends, we are in the middle of a series in which we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And of all the different opinions that are out there about this, I think probably the most hotly debated question is whether or not Jesus is God. Orthodox Christians say he is. Skeptics say not so fast. I'm willing to concede that Jesus was a great human being, but that's all he was, a great man, but just a man. And so this morning, we are going to look into that. We've put this question off for a few weeks, but today we need to explore it. But before we do, why is this question so important? Let me tell you a story. When I was a kid um, and young, like seven or eight years old, one of my favorite things was uh, on Sunday evenings, my mom and dad and younger brother and I would gather in the living room to watch TV. And it was 
classic 1970s shows like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or The Wonderful World of Disney. But the reason it was my favorite thing wasn't because of the television shows. It was because during commercials, my dad would get down on the living room floor and wrestle with my brother and I, and we would just squeal with laughter. The reason I remember it so vividly is because um, when my dad would hold us in his arms on the living room floor, and he was a big man, there was nothing like that feeling of safety and being delighted in and loved like that. But the sad thing is that my dad was also, and I don't know how else to say this except to say that he was also a rageaholic. Several times a week, if not once a day, if not several times a day, this big man would just explode in anger. And the scary thing was you never knew when it was coming. The result was that um, no matter how much safety and delight and love I felt when my dad would hold us in his arms on the living room floor, there was always a sense in which I felt and continue to feel cut off from real safety, real delight, and real love. I would be willing to bet a month of my paycheck that each one of us knows exactly what that feels like. That no matter how loving and tender and beautiful and intimate your relationships may be, we all know what it's like to feel cut off from perfect safety, perfect delight, and perfect love. Now, maybe that's just neurobiology and the result of living in a random, chaotic universe. Maybe. But the reality is that um, even the best experiences of love, safety, and delight that any of us have ever had um, come nowhere near to fulfilling our thirst for it. It's like just a few drops of gas in a 14-gallon tank. It's barely enough to get our engine started, and yet it feels like our capacity for that is infinite. Why is that? And what do we do about it? I want to propose that this question of whether or not Jesus is God has a powerful relevance to that experience and a life-changing solution for it. How? Well, let's take a look at this passage and see three things this morning. We're going to look at, number one, the divinity of Jesus, number two, why it matters, and number three, how it comes. Uh, First, the divinity of Jesus. Uh, The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are a very famous passage, and we're not going to go into detail this morning. Uh, If you are curious to learn more, we did a three-part series on this back in December of 2019, so if you want to learn more, that's on our website. But for this morning, John begins in verse 1 by talking about the Word. Now, he's talking about Jesus, and he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So first of all, he's saying that Jesus is God. But in addition, that word with means relationship. That Jesus not only is God, he's in relationship with God. In fact, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit and says the Holy Spirit's also a part of that relationship. That means that the God the Bible presents us with is one God, But within that one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in this eternal, infinite love relationship with each other. Now, we'll come back to that. But for right now, this verse is the clearest and most explicit statement in the whole Bible that says Jesus is God. In fact, it's so clear and explicit that it's provoked a lot of controversy 
a lot of pushback. People will say, wait a minute, you know, the gospel of John was written 50 to 60 years after the death of Jesus, and um, by that time, all these legends and myths about Jesus had developed. So this is just later Christians projecting those myths back onto the historical figure of Jesus. But the real Jesus never said anything like that. This is just an invention of the church. So what do we say to that? Well, one of the things that professional historians almost unanimously agree on is that belief in Jesus as God was not a late invention of the church. Christian belief in Jesus as God was actually something that happened almost immediately within the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that earliest, the very earliest Christians believed in Jesus as God. It wasn't a late invention of the church. Now people might say, well, um, they just made it up. Because the question is, you know, how did they come to this belief that Jesus was God? And many skeptics would say, well, they made it up. But can we interrogate that idea for just a little bit? Who were the very first Christians? They were orthodox, monotheistic Jewish people. That means that for a thousand years at least, they had a worldview of God that said that God is so high, so holy, so transcendent, that the idea that this God would become a human being was not just unthinkable, it was scandalous and offensive. So here's the question. What would compel someone to do a complete 180 in their most deeply held convictions? For instance, what would compel you to abandon your belief that the earth revolves around the sun? Can you even imagine that not being true? I can't. But here's the thing, um, something way bigger than a Copernican revolution happened in the lives of these first Jewish followers of Jesus. So here's the question, which makes more sense to say that they made it up or to see if maybe there's some evidence of something happening that might have changed their minds about this. And when you look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, which professional historians um, tend to agree are pretty credible accounts. Um, what do you find when you look at the Gospels? Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of statements that compel you to at least ask the question, what kind of human being says something like this? So, for instance, um, in the first week of this series, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Even the most skeptical people I know say that, ooh, the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we get in touch with the real Jesus, this great moral teacher. I've never met anybody who doubts that Jesus said things like, judge not, or uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's like, that's the real Jesus, this great moral teacher. Okay, well, those verses come from Matthew chapter 7. And if you were with us, you might remember, what else does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? Jesus claims to be the one who sits on the God's throne of judgment, who dispenses the final verdict on all of humanity, and who tells people that their eternal destiny depends on their relationship with him. So what kind of human being says something like that? The answer is no sane human being or no mere human being. And listen, it's not just Matthew chapter 7. Again, if you were to go through the gospel accounts of Jesus and take out every statement Jesus ever made that had even an implicit claim to divinity, you'd be left with almost nothing. For instance, um, Matt, uh, uh, almost all historians agree uh, that Jesus called 12 apostles as a deliberate sign of the 12 tribes of Israel, but in Hebrew scriptures, God is the one who appoints the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Or Jesus uh, claimed to be the bridegroom, but in Hebrew Scriptures, God is the one who calls himself the bridegroom. Friends, we could go on like this all day long. Let me give you one more. Jesus said that he is uh, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. But in Hebrew Scriptures, only God has the authority to forgive sins. If you were a first century Jewish person and you heard Jesus saying things like this, you would have been so shocked and scandalized, you would have never forgotten it, and they never did. Uh, This would have caused a huge controversy, and it did. It would have gone viral on Twitter. (laughs) You know, they would have canceled Jesus. In fact, they did cancel Jesus, or at least they tried to. But friends, here's the point. Um, Christian belief in Jesus as God is not something that came from the first Christians. It came from Jesus himself. That means if you want to know who Jesus really is, then you have to, one of the main things you have to grapple with is the likelihood that the person you're dealing with actually claimed to be God. Can we prove that he is? Of course not. But But this is somebody who, this is what Jesus actually said about himself. We can be confident about that. Not 100% absolute certainty, but a pretty good degree of confidence. And that leads to our next point. We've just looked at the divinity of Jesus. But next, we need to see why it matters. Because here's the thing. We could nerd out on the historical evidence all day long, but what difference does it make in our lives? Especially to that experience we were talking about of feeling cut off from perfect safety, delight, and love. Well, let's keep looking. In verse 4, John goes on to say, In him, in Jesus that is, was life, and the life was the light of humankind. Now, um, John is saying that Jesus is the very source of all life and all light. That Jesus is the very source of that safety, delight, and love we all long for. But if that's the case, then why do we feel so cut off from it? Verse 5, John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that word overcome is an interesting word. It can mean many different things. Here it's translated overcome, which means that the world was actually hostile to Jesus. But other translations say that the, um, the darkness did not receive the light or the darkness did not comprehend the light. So which is it? The answer is John uses this word on purpose because it means all of these things. John is saying that Jesus is the source of all life and light. He is the source of all the safety, delight, love, joy, peace, meaning, intimacy, beauty, and belonging that we all long for, but we don't recognize him. We don't understand him, and as a result, we reject him. That means the world is darkness. You and I are darkness. Now, that sounds pretty off-putting. It even sounds offensive. How could something like that be? Well, remember that experience we're talking about of feeling cut off from perfect safety, delight, and love. Here's the question. If a loving personal God exists, and that loving personal God created us to be in a loving personal relationship with himself, if that God exists and we live as if he doesn't, or if we seek the life and light we're meant to have in him in something else, then by definition, we're in darkness. And of course, we're going to feel cut off from that life and that light. I mean, that's, that's what that means. 
So for instance, in the ancient world, this, this was their experience. You know, the Bible talks constantly about idolatry. Idolatry means worshiping something other than God. And so when you look in the ancient world, you see that um, people would reject the one true God and they would bow down to gods of the harvest or fertility or military power. And that was just um, very common in the ancient world. But we modern people are really no different from that. Sociologists and philosophers have a word they use to describe our modern world. They say that we live in a disenchanted world. Disenchanted um, means that even though many people still might believe in God, God plays less and less of a meaningful role in our daily reality. It's like we live as if God doesn't exist. So for instance, um, you know, many people would um, talk about the reality that, well, like, look, there's still God is present in, our, in our, our world. So you look at our world and you see all kinds of places where God shows up in our daily reality. I mean, you look at our money, it still says in God we trust. Or, you know, if you're trying to get elected to public office, even if you're a Democrat, you still feel pressure to invoke God in order to get elected as a politician. At a surface level, God is still in our lives, but at a daily lived reality, God is less and less. He plays less and less of a role in our lives. In other words, at a surface level, God is still present in our world. Disenchantment means that at a deeper level, at the level of the stories that really shape our lives, God is not there, and we don't even notice. So think about the books and movies and films and things that shape the stories that shape the way we live in this world. For instance, um, The Hunger Games is a fun example. You know, much of The Hunger Games is based on the ancient Roman world. But if you took an ancient Roman person and brought them into the future and sat them down in a movie theater so they could watch the film on the big screen, um, once they got over the initial shock of that, they would find a lot in the movies that, that they would be able to resonate with and relate with to their own ancient Roman world. I mean, for instance, they would look at a movie like this and they would say, oh, look, a worldwide empire of peace, but it's a peace that's built on the brutal oppression of all the outlying districts so that even the slightest sign of rebellion is immediately crushed. Any ancient Roman would look at that and they would say, check. Or they would see a capital city that's full of lavish decadence and gluttonous feasts and extravagant makeup and hairstyles and clothing and glad large-scale gladiatorial games there where contestants are forced to fight to the death. Any ancient Roman would look at that and they would say, check. But do you remember the motto of the Hunger Games? What do they tell the, con the contestants? May the odds be ever in your favor. When an ancient Roman hears that, they would say, wait, what? Uncheck. Why? Because in the ancient world, their whole life, every aspect of their life, was filled with the presence of the gods and religion. There was nowhere they could go, nothing they could do to escape the active presence of the gods in their everyday life, every aspect of their life. So in the ancient world, the motto for the Hunger Games wouldn't have been, may the odds be ever in your favor. It would have been, may the gods be ever in your favor. And yet we live in a world in which writers and movie makers can substitute the odds for the gods, and we don't even notice. 
at a daily lived reality, God is not present in the stories that shape our everyday lives, and we don't even notice it. So listen, here's where we're at. In our world, God feels far, and we feel cut off. Is there anybody here who never feels, even for just a moment, who never feels like there's something missing from your life? I mean, what, what do we do? We go looking for something to fill that aching chasm in our soul. We are really no different from ancient people. Even though ancient people would bow down to gods of the harvest and fecundity or military power, in our modern world, we bow down to different gods, gods like politics or nationalism or activism or pleasure, or especially we bow down to the god of identity. For instance, Naomi Klein is a writer and activist. She wrote a best-selling book about mass marketing. It's called No Logo. And in that book, she talks about how companies used to sell products like running shoes, but now they sell brands like Air Jordans. And so she's talking about mass marketing, and she says this. She says, the selling of the brand acquired an extra component that can only be described as spiritual. Every company with a powerful brand is attempting to develop a relationship with consumers that resonates so completely with their sense of self that they will aspire or at least consent to be serfs under these feudal brand lords. Branding, in its truest and most advanced incarnations, is about corporate transcendence. Now, the language this secular brilliant woman uses is amazing, but do you hear what she's saying? Corporations are not selling products, they're selling identity, they're selling meaning and transcendence, and we are so starved for it that we just gobble it up. Friends, here's the point. We were created for a loving personal relationship with a loving personal God, and yet if we live as if, even if we believe in that God, and yet we live as if that God doesn't exist, or we try to seek the life and the light that we were meant to find in that God in something else, then of course we're in darkness, and of course we're going to feel cut off from perfect safety, delight, and love. Is there anything that we can do about that? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the divinity of Jesus. We've just looked at why it matters, but lastly, we need to see how it comes, because here's our situation um, remember that experience we feel. God feels far. We feel cut off. So how do we respond to that situation? For thousands of years, one of the main ways that human beings have responded to this situation is we have sought some way to escape this material world and to be liberated into a purely spiritual reality. So you see this impulse, for instance, in many of the world's religions. You see it in Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. You see it in Western religions. In the ancient Greek world, it was all about escaping the prison house of the body and being liberated into a purely spiritual realm. In fact, they had a word for it at the time. Um, right around the time that John was writing this gospel, it was called Gnosticism. It was the very beginnings of Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's all about getting this secret special knowledge, unlocking the key so that you can be liberated out of physical material reality and liberated into a purely spiritual realm. You escape the body. You escape the flesh. You escape the evil and suffering of this world. And it's not just an ancient thing. Uh, you see it even today in things like New Age spirituality. You even see it in the church. 
when Christians talk about God destroying this world and carrying us away to heaven, or when we sing songs like, I'll fly away, those are forms of Gnosticism. And listen, it makes sense because this world is painful and hard. This world is full of trauma and abuse. It's full of evil and sufferings. I mean, there's no end to the headlines that fill our newspapers about the ongoing violence and justice. I mean, even again, just over the last, yesterday in the last few weeks, um, of violence and injustice that continues to be done against marginalized communities and people of color. Our world is full of loneliness and anxiety and constant pressure to achieve something and be somebody in this world. Of course we want to escape. Of course. Now, and that's why so many of us are addicted. In fact, all of us are addicted to something in this world because all of us want to escape the pain of this world. But friends, this is exactly where um, the gospel comes and confronts us. And by the way, one of the most powerful um, ways you see the impulse to Gnosticism in our current world is in technology. Um, what is virtual reality? It's a simulated reality. In fact, uh, you know, when I downloaded this picture, I, I was looking at it, and I realized it's not even a real picture. It's just compu- a computer-generated person. Virtual reality is, is a digital body. It's a virtual body, not a real body. Because that's what virtual means. Virtual means almost but not quite real, genuine, or authentic. Friends, real life in a real world with real bodies is really painful and hard. We feel cut off from the real love that we long for. So what do we do about that? We work our tails off trying to scrap together just a few crumbs and morsels of virtual love, like admiration. Admiration is not real love. Admiration is virtual love. And yet, we settle for it. Why? Because evil has hardwired our hearts and our lives to believe that that is the best we'll ever be able to find in this world. The pain and the darkness and the difficulty of this world has made us all Gnostics, willing to settle for virtual love, something less than real love. And when that doesn't satisfy us, we just escape into our addictions. But friends, this is exactly where the gospel, and especially the divinity of Jesus Christ, comes and it completely confronts all of our Gnostic impulses. It says, the thing you really desire really is available. If you look at the beginning of this gospel, John begins by saying, in the beginning. He's quoting the very first verse in the whole Bible, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's saying that God created this physical, material world, and he called it good. It's saying that God created human beings with physical, material bodies, and he called it good. As far as I've ever been able to discover, the Bible is the only place in history that affirms the goodness of material creation and says that God's vision is not to destroy it, but to redeem and to renew it. As far as I've ever been able to discover, every other religion or spiritual path is all about what we must do to escape this world and be with God. But the gospel is all about what God has done to indwell this world and be with us. And boy, that's exactly what this passage says in verse 14. Verse 14 is the most paradigm-shattering, life-changing, revolutionary statement in the history of the world. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's saying God 
became a human being. Because remember, Jesus is God. And the essence of who God is, at the very essence of his, of, of his being, is this intimate, eternal love relationship between three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And boy, that really comes out later in the passage. It says this, um, that the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, the only, it's talking about Jesus, and it says Jesus was at the Father's side. Now, that word side literally is the word bosom. Think about what that means. You know, when I was a kid, um, resting in the bosom of my father on that living room floor. That was the closest I could get to safety, delight, and love. And even that was so far away from the real safety, delight, and love that I've always longed for. What is it we all long for? What is it we're all feeling cut off from? It's the bosom. You were created for the bosom of the Father. You were created to find rest in the perfect safety, delight, and love of the bosom of the Father. And friends, Jesus had that. From all eternity, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, and you were created for that too. You were created for it too. And so Jesus came to earth to give that to us. You know, the amazing thing about the gospel is that it says you don't have to settle for a virtual love. You get real love in Jesus. Jesus didn't come to give us a virtual love. Jesus came to give us a real love. And the way he did it was not by means of a virtual salvation. He did it by means of a real salvation, embodied salvation with a real cross, real blood, real nails, with real, a real crown of thorns that was pressed down and dug into a real head that felt real pain. Jesus was crucified on a cross of real wood with real splinters that dug into a real back that had been lacerated open through whips and lashes that were embedded with real pieces of, of bone and metal. And he did it all so that you could experience real safety, real delight, real beauty, real love. Not kudos, or likes, or shares, or admiration, but love. So if you're exploring faith this morning, or maybe you're somebody who doesn't even think that faith in God is something that's even relevant to our daily world, I think it's called apathyism. You know, I want to encourage you to consider the possibility that your need for God is greater than you think. We live in a world that says there is no God-shaped hole. Um, Religion is a primitive superstition. These are the stories that shape our lives. It says we don't need God to be good or happy or free. We keep trying to convince ourselves that God is not there. God is not real. We don't need God. And yet, our lives are filled with all kinds of God's substitutes. Would you consider the possibility this morning that, um, that you have a real need for a real God and that that God is really available and if you are a Christian, you know, listen, here's the thing. We live in the same world, and our lives are just as shaped by the same stories, which means that we are just as tempted to um, settle for admiration, not love. It means that we are just as prone to addictions that help us to escape our fear and our shame and the pain and the darkness of living in this world. The problem and the real challenge is that because we're Christians, oftentimes we feel like we're not allowed to be real about that. We feel like we're not allowed to be honest about the struggles that we really have. What that does is it makes our struggle even worse. And so I would um, encourage you this morning, maybe find just one person 
that you can trust, and you can tell them about that. It's really scary to say, I'm not okay. I'm struggling today. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that this is a God, the only God, who became weak and vulnerable on a cross so that he could rush to your side in the midst of your weakness, your struggle, your vulnerability. Friends, the more real we become about that, the more real God becomes to us. You were created to find perfect rest, perfect safety, delight, and love in the bosom of the Father. You don't have to settle for virtual love. You don't have to settle for admiration instead of love. The real love that you were created for is available to you and is even now willing and able and ready and longing to rush to your side and be more and more real to you in your life. Let this God, let this Jesus into your darkness and let him fill you with his life, his light, and his love. It's what we were created for. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning. We thank you this morning for your love. Father, um, if we're being really honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that a lot of time we do believe that the best we could ever hope to find in this world is admiration or some virtual form of love. We, um, we lament that evil has hardwired our hearts to believe that admiration or other virtual forms of love is the best that we can ever get because it's the, it, we don't even deserve real love. Father, I pray that you would counteract and overturn and subvert all of those lies in our hearts and that you would help us to open ourselves to the real need we have for a real God who's really available through Jesus Christ, the real Savior who came into this world and died a real death on a real cross so that we could experience your real love. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.